Hi, I'm Jamie from New York City. I'm Chase from Seattle. Hi, I'm David from Santa Monica. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is produced independently and supported by listeners like you and me. You should support the show like I did. Just visit MaximumFun.org slash donate. I'm Jesse Thorne. In 1969, the R&B singer-songwriter Jerry Williams was looking for a change. I no longer wanted to be Jerry Williams because it sounds so generic. He started to record a really weird album called Total Destruction to Your Mind. And I found myself quite by accident. I put something together and it came out great. And I decided on Swamp Dog. A psychedelic soul maverick was born. It's Bullseye. This week, Swamp Dog, the unsung hero of psychedelic soul, reflects on his career, one that found him winning awards for, among other things, country and western hits. The baby-faced comedian John Mulaney talks about getting blackout drunk and earning money. How? To be honest, he doesn't remember. And the comedy group Casper Hauser brings us the news that they made up. All that and more this week on Bullseye. Let's go. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. Every week, we like to check in with a few of our favorite culture critics to get some picks for stuff that you should be checking out. This week, no different. And this week, we're joined by two of our favorite comic book critics for some picks from the world of comics. Brian Heater, Alex Zalbin, welcome to the program. It is a pleasure to have you. Thanks for having us on. I've got so many picks for you, Jesse. Oh, no, no. Only one pick, Brian. Only one pick. Oh, I'm drowning in picks. <laughs> um, Brian, let's uh, lessen your load of picks uh, a little bit. Uh, let's start with this comic uh, on the lighthearted subject of being friends with Jeffrey Dahmer. Um, it's called My Friend Dahmer. Uh, tell me a little bit about it. It is, it's, I guess, a surprisingly mostly lighthearted look at the uh, formative years. I don't know if you could call them the formative years of, of Jeffrey Dahmer, but certainly the uh, pre-cannibalistic years of Jeffrey Dahmer. Uh, he happened to have gone to high school with this artist, John Backdurf, uh, who goes by the pseudonym Durf. Uh, they went to high school together in the same small town and were, were kind of sort of friends. I mean, he was about as close as anybody could be to Jeffrey Dahmer. And it's a sort of a, a surprisingly sympathetic look at kind of how he turned into the cannibalistic serial killer that he would later become. Is there actual insight in the book like can you get an insight into how someone became a cannibalistic serial killer yeah no there's 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 certainly some insight here i don't you know it's not um it's it's not justification but it's insight i'll say that alex zalbin tell me a little bit about daughter of my father's eyes uh, this is a great book. It has nothing to do with cannibalism, so that's kind of nice as well. It's a graphic novel memoir by a writer named Mary Talbot that she did with her husband, Brian Talbot, who's an excellent comic book artist. And it parallels her rather complicated relationship with her father with James Joyce's relationship with his daughter. Uh, and the tie-in there is that Mary Talbot's father was a James Joyce scholar, a pretty prominent James Joyce scholar. Uh, the thing that I really like about the book is I feel like a lot of memoirs are predicated on something like 
I went to school with a cannibal or something like that, something really big. But this focuses on very small things. Her father is a little bit of an absent father. And that small thing, that small note, affects her in really big ways in the same way that James Joyce's daughter is affected by the fact that her father is just more famous than she'll ever be. So it's a really uh, very complicated portrayal, and the art by Brian Talbot is very cool. Uh, as it jumps around in different eras, he does uh, different artistic styles throughout the book. It's a really great, really complex portrayal of parents and children. It's interesting to me, Alex, to write a comic memoir, and when I say comic memoir, I mean a memoir in the form of comics, about a figure who is as literary and is deeply associated with words as James Joyce is. Like, I mean, all writers are associated with words, but there are few writers as wordsy as James Joyce. You know, there's two reasons for that. One, um, I think it's Mary Talbot's first graphic novel, but Brian Talbot has been doing art for comics for, I think, decades at this point. So certainly that's the medium he's most familiar with. And the other thing is, is the focus is on James Joyce's daughter, who was a dancer who was more expressive uh, not with words. So maybe that's the reason they went for it. Certainly there's uh, words and text mixed into the piece a little bit, but the focus is more on the graphics. So I do think that's an interesting dichotomy going on. Well, Brian, Alex, thank you so much for your recommendations. Thank you. Thank you, Jesse. Alex Zalbin is a writer for MTV Geek and the host of the Comic Book Club in New York City, which you can find online at comicbookclublive.com. He recommends Daughter of My Father's Eyes. That's Daughter, D-O-T-T-E-R, written by Mary Talbot and illustrated by Brian Talbot. Brian Heater is a freelance comics journalist. He also runs the blog The Daily Crosshatch, which you can find online at thedailycrosshatch.com. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest Jerry Williams recorded a few hit records in the 1950s and 60s, including a couple as Little Jerry Williams when he was a kid, before rechristening himself Swamp Dog around 1969. His albums, starting with 1970's Total Destruction to Your Mind, merged social concerns, humor, and the psychedelic spirit of the times into a beloved chapter in soul music history. Here's a track from his debut album as Swamp Dog. It's called Synthetic World.
When Swamp Dog wasn't performing on record, he wrote big hits for artists like Betty Wright and even the country star Johnny Paycheck. I talked to him about his long, amazing career in 2008. Swamp started performing when he was a kid, and he remembers exactly how old he was when he cut his first record. Um, 12. Were you already performing music at the time? Yeah. I was uh, opening act or time killer out at a place called Sunset Lake Park. And uh, it was a beach that brought in acts that were happening just about every weekend. Acts like Chris Kenner, Sam Cooke, Hank Ballard and the Midnighters. Um, the only person I didn't open for was James Brown because James already always had a big aggregation. But they would have me come out and sing. And uh, it was that. The only thing I can think of, maybe I was a cute little kid, and that's and it was working, you know, it's got this kid out there that sings the blues and I was always trying to sing Joe Turner songs and <laughs> things like that and I loved them. So um that's where I was working and I went to other clubs and so forth and sung and had two or three society bands down there. Well wait now, what's a society band? Huh? That's that's a term I've never heard before. Yeah, no, is that a Virginia thing? A society band was, is a band that plays a lot of uh, sorority gigs. They play proms, high school proms, that type of thing. Sure. Yeah, there's a bunch of people. All everybody in there has a day job. Was it? What, did you decide that you were going to be, become a musician, or did uh, your folks decide for you and hand you a, a piano and start you singing, or what? No, I was a piano in the house when I was born, but um, because just just about every other house had a piano. That's because they used to have lots of house parties and house rent parties in those days, and uh, there was always somebody who wandered in who could play the piano and sing whether good or bad. And they used to get it on. You know, that that was it. They'd boogie all night. Let me introduce myself. I'm the lover man. I'm here to make you happy. So let's go back to you cutting from your first record. You were you were twelve, you said. Yes. Were you touring through through your teenage years? Like, did, were you playing gigs out? Yeah, 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 yeah. Did it interrupt your school? No, it didn't interrupt school. It was weekends. Um, every now and then, something in the middle of the week at night, but that was right at home. What what kind of music did you? A, a lot of times, the age age twelve is like. 
around when you go from uh, having this kind of musical taste that's just sort of inherited from your folks and uh, sort of what's around to like really picking, oh, this is what I really like. Like when you're 13, 14, 15 years old, that's often the time in your life when you're like, oh, this is the music that defines who I am or whatever. Did you did you go through that? Yeah. I wanted to be Fats Domino. I thought everything Fats Domino did was terrific. And Fats Domino and Wyoming Harris and Larry Darnell, guys like that. Because, see, the main thing I had going for me is the... The theater there, the Capitol Theater. I was going to the Capitol Theater to see shows ever since I was about five or six years old. And I guess by the time I was nine, I was going by myself. And I saw all of the shows that came through town. And Were you buying your own tickets? I must have been getting the money from my aunts and so forth because I didn't have any income. (laughs) But, um, yeah, I saw everybody. I saw everybody and got a chance to talk to them. At the time, people loved me because I could sing all the Fast Domino songs and I was learning to play piano like Fast Domino, only to find that I don't know how well Fast Domino plays. He he might be a fantastic musician, but what he gave to the public was limited on piano, which is good because once you find out what people want, that's what you give them. You don't give them what you want to give them. Give them what they want. And I learned to play like him, and I'm still at that stage. The only thing that keeps my records from sounding like he's doing another fast domino type tune type arrangement is that I have all of these production ideas and sounds in my head that I want to hear, and I drop them in to my productions. But if you stripped all of that stuff away from my productions, you'd hear a 12-year-old in there singing, <laughs> ain't that a shame? Bullseye, I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is the legend of psychedelic soul, Swamp Dog. How did you become an adult artist? Like, how did you figure out who actual Jerry Williams is your real well, name, right? actually, I started... How did you go from little Jerry Williams to just Jerry Williams? Well, first I started out as little Jerry. Uh-huh. And the, the first records came out as little Jerry. Um, and then in 19... 19- 65, when I had Baby You My Everything, which was an R&B hit, I was little Jerry Williams. How old were you when that when that record hit? Okay, uh, 23. Okay. Um, I dropped the little when I put out my second Cala record. Mm-hmm. It came out as Jerry Williams because there was too many littles out there. Everybody was little somebody, you know. I, I didn't even feel right being called little so so much for little 
was uh, was Jerry Williams different than Little Jerry Williams as a as an artist or a performer? No, no, because no, little you've heard this. The and I sent you the anthology. Yeah. Okay. So that that entire anthology is me looking for myself, and I found myself quite by accident in 1969 when I started to put together the Swamp Dog album. But I wasn't putting together a Swamp Dog album. I was I was putting together an album. I no longer wanted to be Jerry Williams because it sounds so generic. There was a lot of Williamses out there at the time. And I decided on Swamp Dog after the album was complete because after the album, well, after the first two songs uh, out of the Total Destruction album, which was uh, uh, If I if I Die Tomorrow, I've Lived the Night and Everything You'll Ever Need. Dancing Sheet the Cheat This though, Swamp. Sure. Because um, caution every question costs a dollar. Sold. Um, so, you. If I die tomorrow, I've lived tonight. Is a pretty straightforward record thematically. There's there's no huge curveballs in If I Die Tomorrow, uh-huh. I've Lived Tonight. No. Now, in contrast, there's other songs on that record, like um, you know, Spirit Dust Your Head, Color Red. Yeah. Like, that is an acid song. Like, there's no other way to look at this song, as far as I can tell. You know, you're the first person in all these years. You might have thought it, but nobody else just came oh. out and said it. Well, it is, as far as I can tell. <laughs> I'm, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but... So, what gave you the idea after, you know, you'd been spent the past, you know, five or ten years as a record producer and a songwriter and, you know, a, an artist yourself, singing straight-ahead music, that you should be like, oh, and I'll also I'll do write an acid song. <laughs> Well, um, the song was written while Acid was in the room, I guess. Um, I went to a party and somebody put Acid in the punch. And I come to find out later, it was just everybody at the party was in on it. <laughs> you know, And it was like, we're going to see what happens when he does this. And Wait, so this whole party was just a setup. Everybody except you. Yeah. And they were doing it specifically to see what happened when you ate the punch. Right. Drank the punch. Drank the punch, yeah. Where are you from? Y'all eat punch. <laughs> <laughs> sure you're not European? Don't pick on me. Don't pick on me. I'm trying to conduct an interview here. Okay, well, after I ate the punch, it, uh, I went through a bunch of changes. And... Uh, 
I didn't get straight for a few days and I've always had some kind of little flashbacks and all that kind of crap since then most of my life and I still feel that some of the psychological problems that I have today is from that because then later I tried it one more time uh, just with my consent right okay and no no I can't do this no more I don't don't like this spirit dust your hair color red It's Bullseye, I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is Soul Maverick Swamp Dog. But most of the songs that I wrote, and especially the ones I wrote with Gary Barnes, we, we wrote them mainly as a joke. You should see some of the things that we wrote that never was recorded, never came out. I mean, you know, it's uh, we wrote a couple of uh, uh, gay songs back in the 60s, uh, thing about something about why won't they let us be, why won't they leave us alone. I mean, we really got all into it. But, man, we didn't dare play it for anybody but, any, but each other <laughs> and a few uh, friends who would come by and did you just get together and think like what are the button pushing songs we could possibly write like what what songs could we write yeah, that would really yeah. set people off yeah and we also wrote a lot of songs uh, about I remember we wrote before Jackie Wilson died way before he died we wrote a song about the late great Jackie Wilson you know and we would do that <laughs> it was like, but see that was that Johnny Walker Black <laughs> writing those songs. We would be drinking that Johnny Walker. And uh, <laughs> let's write a song. I got an idea. Just sit down and just start. It, it was fun, though. We wrote some hits. My guest is Swamp Dog. He's a legend of psychedelic soul. But he also wrote country and western hits, including a number one for Johnny Paycheck. We'll talk about it when we come back. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and PRI. Public Radio International. Hi, I'm homosexual Brian Safi. And I'm feminasty Erin Gibson. And we host Throwing Shade, a weekly podcast that looks at lady issues and gay issues and treats them with much less respect than they deserve. Erin, have you ever heard of gay marriage? No. Brian, ever heard of abortions? Never. Uh, gay stereotypes? No, thank you. Glass ceilings? I love laying on them. Brian and I have known each other for so long. So long. God, we know each other so well, we practically finish each other's Do you have sentence. any more iced tea? Says... One day a week, we sit in Aaron's apartment and record the podcast. And then other days of the week, we sit in Aaron's apartment and don't record the podcast. Brian and I never have a guest because we want it to be all about us. Our parents didn't love us very much. We need a lot of attention. Lots of attention. Subscribe to Throwing Shade on iTunes. Or go to MaximumFun.org. Hey, gang, Jesse here. We've got a ton of great stuff lined up for the Max Fun Drive this year. Gifts, giveaways, exclusive bonus episodes of all of our shows. It's the best time of year to become a MaxFun member. So keep it locked to all of your favorite MaximumFun.org shows. The MaxFun Drive starts on March 26th. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is the eccentric soul legend Swamp Dog. 
When we left off, we were talking about his first album under the Swamp Dog moniker, 1970s Total Destruction to Your Mind. So what ha- what happened when you put together this record? Like, how did you you so you you're recording these songs? Like, did you bring it to somebody and say, "Hey, I got somebody named Swamp Dog that's not me"? Well, no, I went to uh, I went to Russ Reagan first. Russ was running uh, review records at the time. Played it for Russ, and he loved it. And I wanted a budget for an album. He said, well, no, let me just put out the single, and uh, then we'll do the album after this hits. Well, I was still savvy enough. I was savvy enough then to know that nobody knows what's going to hit. And I considered those songs the weakest things I could do. So uh, I walked away from that deal, and I went to somebody else who wanted it and they, oh yeah, Mickey Stevenson had a company at the time and he, he liked it. And he said, well, who's the artist, man? And I went out in the hall. It was late at night, about 10 o'clock at night. I was up at his office. I went out in the hall and I was trying to think of a name. Couldn't come up with anything. And I don't know how I left there, but eventually I went to, Wally Roker over at uh, Canyon Records. And that's where I ended up signing. By this time, I have gone back to Macon, Georgia, and I have done the album. And we were down there doing some music that they were calling, that Jerry Wexler had coined, swamp music. Okay? So that's what Tony Joe White was supposed to have been playing and all that kind of stuff. So, so okay, I'm a swamper. So I went with the swamp. And I went with um, Dog because your dog is full of surprises. And you just about, you know, you could bring your dog in here right now. He may lick you or he may walk in here and do his business on the floor. Um, And you'll put him out. But then after you put him out, about an hour from now, when you don't hear him at all, you'll go, when does anything happen to that? What's, where's that dog? And you'll open the door and the dog will be standing there looking at you with them eyes. And you say, come on in there. Don't you do that anymore. But you've brought him back. You've given him another chance. You've given him another shot. He's going to do it again. But that's what my songs are like. It's like, wow, don't, why'd you cut that? You know. But then you listen to something else. You say, wow, now I really like this. I like this. You don't, nobody likes everything that Swamp Dog does. Uh, if they did, I'd be afraid of them. You know, it's because uh, I don't like everything that Swamp Dog does. You know, I I do some things and I they get released and I think about them later. And uh, no, I don't know why I did that. I wouldn't do that again. So we we just wrote a lot of things that we felt, and they weren't all specifically written for this album. These were songs that had been piling up and as I went through my little batch of songs pull that out and say okay let me give that a shot maybe and that's the way I compile all compile the songs for the session do you have a favorite record that you that you wrote and cut for that first for that first LP uh a favorite yeah I think is Mama's baby, daddy's maybe. 
See, that was a joke, so that was a joke. Uh, it was, uh, but then it started to make sense when it hits the chart. But that was not the one I wanted to come out for a single. I thought it wouldn't work because right at that time, we were going through some sort of change in the industry where, like, nobody wanted to play blues. Don't play blues. Down on blues. Everybody wanted, especially black audiences, they were all becoming very bourgeois and they wanted to hear Amar Jamal and Ramsey Lewis. And, you know, everybody was sitting around just plucking their fingers real nice, you know, and drinking beer and being, I don't know, something that they were. Because you notice every time one of those artists would put out a song, a record that had some kind of funk attached to it, that's the record that went to the top, like Cannonball with Mercy, Mercy, and uh, Ramsey Lewis with In Crowd. You know, the only one that didn't was Amar Jamal, but he did it with Ponciana, you know, but which was real nice. So they were liking the blues, but B.B. King and everybody was catching hell getting played. And Wally Roker says, I'm putting out Mama's Baby Daddy's Neighbors and saying, oh, man, I'm dead before I'm born, you know. So he put it out, and like, bam, they started playing it. It was it was a controversial little blues song. It wasn't like you know the regular "My Baby Left Me" and I'm going found and kill her. You know, it was uh, you know somebody been running around. She's running around with a white man, and, and then all the screaming on the end and all that. Swamp Dog then? No, uh-uh. I should have, and I would have. I'd be a star today, but I didn't. I just wanted to cut records. I really thought I could go through life producing records. Well, I could have if they had all been hits, or most of them, or even some of them. But no, uh, I just wanted to. I just wanted to make the records. I didn't want the tour. And that was the worst mistake, one of the worst mistakes. I made a couple of worst mistakes. That was one of the worst mistakes of my life because the people didn't get a chance to see me. Now I'm working a lot. And I'm doing things on stage that I should have been doing on stage in 1970 or even the 60s. But I was kind of glad I went through the 60s the way I did because... Now I would be a true oldie but goodie, you know, and I'd be still running around singing Baby My Everything, stuff like that, and nobody would be interested in me now. I refuse to become antiquated um, in this music as long as I can do anything about it and 
long as God still like my music, he got all my albums. <laughs> now, you can go to bed at night, you know, and if you just be very quiet, you can hear God playing Swamp Dog. You can just, just faintly. <laughs> what, I'm sorry, what, sorry. I've never tried it. I've, it I'll give it, it a shot. Yeah, yeah. I'm not sure if I'm entirely convinced, but I'll try. <laughs> give it a shot. <laughs> you gonna be doing that tonight, Leo? So in this, in this, your fiance, what's wrong? No, wait a minute. Oh, sh- <laughs> listening to Swamp Talk. <laughs> God's Swamp Talk. <laughs> it's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is the Soul Maverick Swamp Dog. If you don't know his music, there is a lot of fun ahead of you. So in the 70s, you had these kind of parallel careers. Like you're cutting these kind of crazy Swamp Dog records uh-huh. throughout the decade. Right. You're also writing and producing just like you were in the 60s. You know, you, you, you wrote a hit, hit record for Betty Wright. You wrote a couple hit records. Gene Pitney. And you also had this other <laughs> career, which is you, your biggest hit record of the 70s wasn't a soul record at all. It was a country record. Right. Tell me about how that happened. Basically, when I sit down and play piano, everything I do sounds country. Even a blues sounds country when I play it and sing it. As a result, I have to, again, bring in all kinds of instrumentation to kind of play down the country. Not a lot of country records with horns, for example. Right, you know, but it's... So it then it carries me into a, a makes it R and B to a great degree. So after I wrote it, or Gary Barnes and I wrote it, I cut it on Freddie North, which was on my label, and it went gold. But Freddie North was a demo singer, so Bob Tubert, who was heading up Accelerex Publishing Firm, and I had split publishing with them took the song over to Billy Sherrill over at Epic. Billy fell in love with it. So he immediately cut it on Johnny Paycheck, Loretta Lynn, Conway Twitty. Well, I said, friend, don't take her, she's all I've got. Please don't take her love away from me. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is the legend of psychedelic soul, Swamp Dog. One week that song, when it was number one, when it was a number one single, it was in the country billboard album charts, I think, 18 times. It was in 18 <laughs> albums. Yeah. You know, what? one of the things it seems like is, is country is a genre that's always embraced humor. Like, it's, you, you can have a hit country record that's yeah. funny in, in a way that's hard in a lot of other kinds of music. Right. Now, there was a... Uh, you used to could do it in R&B right up through Joe Tex. And after Joe Tex, that was the end of it. Um, uh, they, like that uh, that country song, I Love Trashy Women. I forgot who's doing it. But it's great. I love it, you know. And a lot of us like trashy women. They're fun. But... is <laughs> <laughs> that. <laughs> It's, but the country people embraced it and bought it and made it a hit. 
you won you won the uh like a uh country music songwriter of the year or something for that record yeah for that johnny paycheck record what was the award ceremony like where uh all these country guys are sitting out there and it's uh, what was it you and carry us bonds yeah but we went to the we went to the grammys uh we didn't go to the awards dinner because we got a a note in the mail, a, a nice letter in the mail along with a certificate telling us how much they regret the fact that we couldn't make it to the dinner. But we never seen, we, we never saw invitations. <laughs> I didn't know the dinner was going on. <laughs> so I think it was Did just... Did they just say Charlie Pride had your chair already? Uh, yeah, right. You know, it's like, hey, uh, one's enough, you yeah. know. But you cut a country record. One of the records that you sent me, and you reissued about half of your old records on your own label on CD. It's and my talent w- One of the ones that you've, <laughs> one of the ones you've let out, you point to 35 cents on my desk for our radio <laughs> audience. Uh, one of the ones that you put out is this country record that you cut for what, Mercury or something yeah. like that in the, in the 70s that never even no, came 80s. out. 80s. In the 80s? Yeah. How did you? Be, did somebody have the idea that you could become a country music star? Well, I did, <laughs> <laughs> and I still. You do seem believe. to have taken that approach. I still, had a lot of crazy ideas and just gave them a shot. I still believe it. And then when I went, I went to Nashville, and I still I could get through doors because I wrote "She's All I Got," and people still don't associate that with a black writer. So it's just. There's a black guy out here. Says he wrote you all I got. <laughs> well, bring him in. Let's take a look at him. You know, so I could always get through the doors. I still can with that. But it it leaned towards clownism to a way because I was actually going to dye my hair blonde and I was <laughs> going to be wearing a cape and everything. I mean, but it was going to be, but a classy cape. Yeah, is what you're trying yeah. to say. Yeah, and it was going to be, but it <laughs> it was going to be the type of thing that that audience could say, well, hey, he's not really that black you know he's a freak you know that type of thing so but i was gonna get a chance to do all these great songs but the people at the top put the kibosh on it they say hey uh this is crazy yeah we, we're, we're not you know well swamp thank you thank you so much for taking all this time is this it? No, what kind of program is this <laughs> i didn't i didn't talked about nothing and I still got an hour 45 minutes before I have to move my car you want to take a few minutes we'll do a few I'll do a few minutes more I'm down for it yeah no no that's all right let's we'll we'll go with this well thank you so much oh no problem thank you Swamp Dog is a legendary maverick of soul music you can find his single collection it's all good online now he also updates his own website it's online at swampdog, that's D-O-G-G, dot net. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. As a public radio program, Bullseye is obligated to keep listeners up to date with news and current events. But we have no actual journalists on staff. So, here's the news as made up by the comedy group Casper Hauser. With your Casper Hauser News Update, I'm Richard Chlorofenaramine. Angela Snash's hit a deer.
Our top story tonight, a West Valley man was recovering on Saturday after a rare bite from a harbor seal. Ocean swimmer Giles Richmond said the creature bit into his tibia at approximately 0900 hours. Richmond said he was shaken, but that the incident was minor compared with the death of his older brother, which happened, or rather will happen, he says, quote, tomorrow at 11. If he doesn't give me back my wallet, my whistle, and my thong. And a local four-year-old boy has made ripples in the mathematics community. The Kelmsville preschooler, who has been doing math problems at a university level since he was a toddler, has likely contributed a major development to an unsolved math problem known as the Beach and Silware Conjecture. I woke up in the morning, says young Dylan Brancher. I knew that if a curve had an infinite number of rational points, that a point and a while I function basis had to have infinite order. He says that he was delayed in working on the problem because he went poo-poo in the potty without telling mommy and daddy. And wouldn't you know it, even trophies, because of the plastic and chemicals involved in their manufacture, may cause cancer. While the study's results are far from conclusive, doctors at LaPlante Institute are recommending that for now, all people competing in events where trophies are awarded should deliberately lose. And chess may be good for the mind and good for the heart. The brainy board game that has been around for millions of years claims among its fans everyone from dog genius Rin Tin Tin to normal or even stupid people, famous people, probably Einstein, and people in jail. Now scientists say the game may be better than eggs when measured on the Cardi Oscalopi. And that's good news for people with no jugular tube. And twins can read each other's minds, but can porpoises. So far, no proof has been found, but one oceanologist has a hunch. He says, yes. Two years ago, porpoises at the research center where Ted Stegan works began knowing when he brought tuna fish sandwiches to work, a favorite treat. Shortly after that, he says they knew that he liked to collect state quarters, and later that he was bi-curious. How did he know that they knew? Says Stegan, they told Carol, and that's what started this whole storm. And finally, Christmas is still a long way away unless your business is live nativity scenes. The producers and arrangers of such scenes in the fiercely competitive nativity market need all of the animals to be precisely the right age at exactly the right time. And that means having all their animals mate right now. With your Casper Hauser News Update, I'm Richard Chlorpheneramine. Good night. The members of Casper Hauser are based in San Francisco. Their books include Weddings of the Times and Obama's Blackberry. You can catch them live in San Francisco at Cobb's Comedy Club alongside our good friend Mr. John Hodgman on April 29th. After a break, I'll talk to stand-up comedian John Mulaney and reveal my pick for the best live record ever. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and PRI. Public Radio. International. Hey everybody, Jesse here. MaximumFun.org is offering a comprehensive events internship this year. MaxFunCon has been a huge success, and now we're developing new events, spoiler alert, to be held throughout the year. You'll work at our office here in Northeast Los Angeles two days a week. You'll help plan and coordinate our upcoming events, including MaxFunCon. Anyone can apply, but we especially like folks who do the internship for college credit. The application deadline is March 23rd. For more information, just email nick at MaximumFun.org. That's nick, N-I-C-K, at MaximumFun.org.
Hey, podcast listeners, if you take the time to go into iTunes and review Bullseye, it makes a huge difference in our podcast rankings and helps us find new listeners and share the show with other people who might enjoy it and we'll pay you $5 for doing it. All of that is true except for the $5 part. So go to iTunes and review Bullseye if you haven't done it already. Thank you. There is no stopping John Mulaney. By the age of 27, he had moved to New York, gotten a job writing for Saturday Night Live, and debuted his first stand-up comedy special on Comedy Central. This year, Mulaney turns 30, and he's already releasing his second Comedy Central special. It's called New in Town. I also watch this show called Cold Case Files. On Cold Case Files, they solve old murders. And it's really interesting, because what I learned from it is that it was really easy to get away with murder before they knew about DNA. It was ridiculously easy. Like, what was even going on back then? What was a murder investigation like in 1935? One cop would just walk in and be like, Detective, we found a pool of the killer's blood in that hallway. And he would just be like, hmm, gross. Mop it up. Now then, back to my hunch. Mm, look for clues. I'll tell you what we'll do. We'll draw chalk around where the body is. That way we'll know where it was. As John Mulaney observes the world, he is constantly amazed at what he sees. He's a smart aleck, but his wit is infused with unrelenting positivity. On SNL, that sensibility crystallized with his on-screen appearance on Weekend Update as himself in a segment called I Love It. Uh, here are a few things that I'm excited about right now. First up, in the world of technology, I heard this week that AOL might be buying Yahoo. I love it. That's so sweet. It's like when two people in a nursing home start dating. They may not have much time left, but at least they'll have each other. I love it. In the world of movies, let's talk about Disney's Secretariat. I love it. I love to watch any movie that stars an animal because the animal does not know that it is in a movie. As far as that horse knows, there were a bunch of people hanging around him and now they're all gone. He was probably really confused. There were people standing around him yelling, go Secretariat, you have to win. And he was like, yeah, my name is Phil, but all right. He probably thinks he actually won the race, and that's cool. I love it. I spoke to John Mulaney in 2009. He told me about one of the first jokes he ever told. I was at a birthday party when I was four years old. This girl, Liz, from my preschool, and her mom uh, saw the shirt I was wearing and said, that's one sharp shirt you have on. And I said, yeah, sometimes I use it instead of scissors, and then walked out of the room. <laughs> I knew that was. I knew she then that was an outline. You, you happened to be carrying a microphone. You just threw it on the ground. Well, it was an ice cream cone, and I <laughs> threw it to the ground. Isn't that adorable? Were you actually in were you actually in a child sketch comedy group? Yes, yeah, I was in a sketch comedy group when I was 7 years old called The Rugrats. Uh this was before that Nickelodeon cartoon The Rugrats. We didn't take our name from them. Don't accuse us of that. And it was run out of like a black box theater in Chicago, and I still I should ask my mom who first told her about it, but someone said to her like, hey, your kid is weird and loud and annoying. <laughs> Maybe you'd like to do this. And she signed me up for it. And what we would do is just like improv games and different things for probably 
two weeks <laughs> in my head. It felt like six months, but it was probably like two weeks of, you know, twice a week uh, doing these different like kind of improv short form exercises and stuff. And out of that, we built like a review uh, of sketches. Do you remember what any of the sketches were? I do remember doing, um, just doing Dana Carvey's George Bush impression, uh, almost verbatim. It's that, still that pretty good for piece. a seven-year-old. Yeah, I wonder. I have no idea how it sounded. It sounded pitch perfect in my head. Um, but I think I just regurgitated the words that I would hear Dana Carvey do, and uh, that was one. <laughs> that was one standalone piece in the show. <laughs> sure. To give you an idea, we did one sketch. I remember about uh, the boys were the secretaries and the women were the the women. The girls were the bosses, uh, and you know we 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 flipped the gender script. And we wowed the audience. It's a powerful political statement. Yeah, it was. It really was. You went to college at uh, Georgetown University, home of the Georgetown Hoyas. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> this yeah, is the, home of the Hoyas. Yeah. This, is this, this is the segment on uh, college mascots. On the hoops. That I do on every show. Georgetown, for folks right around your age, became a, somehow a comedy hotbed. There are a number of pa two past Sound of Young America guests, uh, uh, Jim Gaffigan and Mike Birbiglia, each mm -hmm. of whom is just a little bit older than you. Yep. Um, uh, your writing partner and partner in crime, often the very funny uh, comedian and actor Nick Kroll, yep. also a, a Georgetown student. How did you get involved in, in doing comedy there? Well, I started at Georgetown, let's see, in 2000. And as a freshman in the first couple of weeks, I auditioned for the Georgetown Improv Group. And the director, who was a senior, was uh, Nick Kroll. Uh, so he cast me in the in the improv group. And we would do, um, you know, um, multiple shows a year and different improv fests and stuff. And Mike Birbiglia, actually, had just graduated before I got there. And along with some other alumni they formed this group called little man in new york that would perform at the ucb theater there so we were both performing at georgetown nick and i and others like jacqueline novak who's a hilarious comic in new york we were all uh, performing together and then you know had this uh link to some performers at the ucb theater and in new york at large so we could kind of you know do our thing at school and also saw you know oh that's how you do it when you get out of college it's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is the comedian John Mulaney. His second stand-up comedy special is called New in Town. Mulaney looks young and innocent on stage, and that made the opening bit of his first comedy special all the more surprising. You know what I used to do, San Francisco? I used to blackout drinking every night of the week. Uh, that's absolutely true. I used to do that every night. For those of you that don't know what that is, uh, blacking out is when you drink so much that your brain goes to sleep, but your body gets all eye of the tiger and soldiers on. I'll tell you about blacking out. It was, it was always weird when I would go out for the night with, like, some money and black out and wake up with no money. It was even weirder, though, when I would go out for the night with some money, black out, and wake up with more money. Because that means that I earned money. That means that I traded goods and or services. What kind of well, reactions do you get? I 
here's the thing. I started talking about drinking and blacking out after I quit drinking. Um, the first time I talked about it was at a club in Cincinnati called Go Bananas. This was probably like 2005, 2005, December. <laughs> and some of those stories or, or you know, uh, anecdotes about blacking out got a laugh. So I kept doing them. So to me, it wasn't gutsy at all. Comedy is a job that takes place at night. It's a job where, you know, if you're drinking a lot every night and you're an insurance salesman, um, you can, if you can pull yourself out of the bed the next day with a black coffee and a couple of raw eggs or whatever you're chosen. <laughs> what year do you You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, in my world, uh-huh. all, all drinkers are insurance salesmen uh-huh. whose cure to it is uh, black coffee and raw eggs. And you left out the Alka-Seltzer. That yeah. business is too loud. That's how hungover they are, is that the Alka-Seltzer fizz is too loud. Um, what were you saying about insurance saying, salesmen in 1939? I was saying, you know, and then they, they can start drinking at happy hour. Mm-hmm. Um, if you're drinking so heavily that you're blacking out, you're drinking during your work hours if you're a comic. Yeah, I, I was doing comedy when I still uh, drank, but not as much. I mean, you know, and, and in fact, I... I stopped about a year after college and then started doing, because of the, the newfound productivity, uh, lots more comedy. The, those periods didn't overlap is what I mean. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is the comedian John Mulaney. His recent comedy special is called New in Town. He's also a writer for Saturday Night Live. One of Mulaney's responsibilities on SNL is to come up with a ridiculous list of nightclub recommendations for the character Stefan a tweaked-out party guy played by Bill Hader. And, frankly, one of my favorite things in the entire world. Do you know any famous New York Irish landmark where people, regular people, might have a festive, regular festive, non-traumatic St. Patrick's Day? Yes. If you're Irish or traditional, I know I have just the place for you. New York's hottest Irish pub is... Opened in 1709 by black Irish comedian Sinbad O'Connor. This lunatic landmark earned the health department's first ever J rating. And this place has everything. Sheep, freckles, potato people, a room full of heprechauns. Oh, I, I think you mean leprechauns. No, heprechauns. They're leprechauns with hep C. How did they get hep C? I'm not going to ask. <laughs> I just have to say, this place doesn't feel very Irish to me. Well, um, well, you know, they're giving out, they're giving out, they're giving out these. Oh, kiss me, I'm Irish. If you insist. Um. Were you intimidated when you first started at Saturday Night Live? I was uh, very intimidated. I am an anxious person. Uh, I was uh, really, 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 really excited to start. It was uh, the job... I'd wanted to have since I was about seven years old, and I was really intimidated. And then I got there, and I have to say, the people there were incredibly welcoming and incredibly friendly. Uh, And if it has a stigma for not being that, uh, that is not my experience at all. Do writing for sketch and writing for stand-up exercise different muscles for you, or is it different sides of the same coin? That's a good question. I guess more different sides of the same coin. I mean... You know, sketches need to have hard jokes like stand-up. 
So it more comes down to, you know, you can write a great joke, but it doesn't make sense for a character. Uh, you write a great joke for yourself as a stand-up, unless you have a really, really defined character on stage, which I, which I don't, you know, like, unless you're like a Stephen Wright and you say, well, that's just not my kind of joke or other comics have a really well-defined character. You can use it in sketch. Um, I've found, uh, <laughs> in my limited experience that, you know, you'll say, you'll come up against the reality that this character wouldn't say such and such joke. Can you think of a joke that you thought of just in passing, maybe recently and found yourself sort of noting it in your mental or, and or physical notebook under either the column stand up or sketch? You know, since I started, um, and I found this like working on important things with Dimitri Martin, when I was, when I was working on those, just most ideas start to go towards the show for better normally. I mean, it's, it's good to just kind of throw your all at those things. So there've been a couple things that I've thought, well, that's just a stand up joke for me to say, but you know, if I have something topical that I think of, there's, you know, submitting it to update. If there's some kind of strange joke that would work as a sketch, I'll, I'll try and get that written as a sketch. So most things honestly fall into the column of, Oh, I should, I should maybe work on this for the show. But I, I try and reserve some things for stand-up still, yeah. My girlfriend's wonderful, though. I listen to everything my girlfriend says. I don't mean she bosses me around. I just listen to everything she says because before I had a girlfriend, I never had someone who's always standing next to me who can just point out obvious things that are happening. <laughs> like, we'll be in a restaurant, and my girlfriend will be like, you ordered your food an hour ago. It should be here by now. And I'm like, yeah, it should. <laughs> It's like having a lawyer for everyday life. <laughs> She'll be like, the bus driver shouldn't talk to you that way. And I'm like, no, he shouldn't. <laughs> Before I had a girlfriend, I had no standard for how I should be treated as a human being. You could do anything to me. I was just like a young Motown singer. I was just shiny and dumb and easy to trick. I was like, oh man, you're gonna give me a whole hundred dollars for all of my songs? Where do I sign, Mr. Barry Gordy? John Mulaney's second comedy special is called New in Town. It's available now on CD, DVD, and digital download. Every week we close the show with a recommendation from yours truly. It's The Outshot. In 1963, Jerry Lee Lewis was a disgraced man. Of course, he'd had those famous personal scandals. His contract with Sun Records was through... He tried to record instrumentals and put them out under the name The Hawk, but that didn't work. He was a few years past his glory days in rock and roll, and it would be a few years yet before he rebuilt his career on the country charts. It was in 1963, though, at the lowest point of his career, that Jerry Lee Lewis made Live at the Star Club, which might just be the best live record ever. Got a woman mean as she could be. Jerry Lee was still only 28, and the audience in Hamburg, Germany, didn't much care about whether he'd married his 13 year old first cousin once removed. In Germany, 
Jerry Lee Lewis was still the killer. You do it until you gotta break it. Gonna do it, boogie, and do it way. I do my little boogie woogie every day now. The concert is full of Lewis's ferocious boogie woogie, but it also shows off the artist that he was becoming an older, wiser country singer. Hell, cheating hard. And of course, when it was time to bring the house down, Jerry Lee was ready. And you can almost hear that wild shock of hair flapping in the microphone. been many rock stars over the years, but there has been only one killer. That's my outshot. That's it for Bullseye this week. The show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Julia Smith is our producer, Nick White, our editor. Our interns are Joe Molinelli and Justin Morissette. Special thanks this week to Roger Gamal at Public Radio International in Minneapolis for helping us record the tracking for the program. Our theme music, Huddle Formation, by the Go Team. Thanks to them and their label, Memphis Industries, for letting us use that. You can find us online at MaximumFun.org. You can email me if you have thoughts about the show, jesse at MaximumFun.org. And remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off. Production of Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is supported in part by the menswear blog Put This On, presenting the Put This On Gentlemen's Association. Members receive a handmade pocket handkerchief in the mail every 60 days. More information at putthison.com. And by Ask Metafilter. Thousands of life's little questions answered. Online at ask.metafilter.com. Support for this program comes from this station and public radio international stations nationwide and is made possible in part by the PRI Program Fund, whose contributors include the Ford Foundation and the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation. PRI Public Radio International.